and uh, that's where we're shooting for. We may not leave verse 14, but uh, hypothetically, we'll make it over to chapter 7 and then some. And let's, let's pray once again. Lord, speak to us tonight bountifully, wonderfully, powerfully from your word that we would know you and your heart and your mind, that we could live a life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, really verse 14 ties in to chapter 7, verse 1. Verse 15 to verse 23 is sort of a parenthesis on sanctification, which he's going to get to over in chapter 7 and 8, and then the practical application starting in chapter 12. <clears throat> and so the real point, again, as we studied the last few weeks, is that we first need to understand justification, the positional aspect of justification, and the practical understanding of justification. And then we're going to be taking a turn now into chapter 6, 7, and 8 into sanctification. And we'll understand there's also positional sanctification as well as practical sanctification. And we'll get to there. But again, with justification, we need to understand positionally. We were with Adam in the garden when he sinned. We were in his loins. In the same way, spiritually, we were with Christ on the cross. 100% of our sins were hung there upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so we were with Christ in his death. We were also with him when he raised again from the dead. Now this is the way the Father sees it. It's spiritual. I can't say that I could give you some kind of natural analogy to, to understand it completely. But this is what the Bible says, that... Um, we were with Christ on the cross, and we rose again with him from the dead. And when we are baptized, that's what we are signifying, that I believe in the finished work of Christ. I love that analogy that, that we have out of the Old Testament, that type, where it says, as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as you look in the Old Testament, all they did is look at that serpent on the pole, and the poison from the snakes that had bit them, it wouldn't uh, affect them. They would live. All they had to do is look. We see the thief on the cross. All he did was look to Jesus. And we'll see him forever in heaven. It says that he believed upon him. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The only words he ever uttered to Jesus, but it was sufficient. His hands were tied to the cross. He could do no good works. His feet were tied to the cross. He could do no good works. He couldn't go to church once. He couldn't read his Bible. He wasn't able to help somebody move. He did no good works. He simply believed in Christ. And this is what we're signifying in baptism, that Christ did the work. And I believe in him. That is our positional place in justification, that Christ did it all. Practically, justification has caused us to be freed from sin. Well, how is that? The Bible makes it very clear in Romans chapter 4 that when Christ died, that he took our sins with him. He rose again. Our sins were not with him. They've been buried. They're gone. There now is no imputation of sin. So now when we sin, the father deals with us uh, as a father deals with a child. Our sins will never separate us again from God. If we are disobedient, God will deal with us. He may scold us. He may give us a time out. He may spank us. He has all kinds of ways. The primary way is this. He floods us with his goodness and his loving kindness and tender mercies just saying, God, you're so good and I'm such a hill. Here I am. Be, I, I want you to be my God. And so practically, we can no longer have sin imputed to us. Practically, we can never be separated from God ever again. That's justification. And this is what he signifies in verse 14 when he makes it clear we no longer, uh, likewise, we can reckon sin dead. He says in verse 11, we, we can reckon sin dead to us. We don't have to be a part of sin. 
and that's going to be heading into sanctification. And we're going to get there tonight, Lord willing. But in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. This is practical justification. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Making it clear once again, we now have a relationship with Christ. That there is nothing that could ever make us wrong with Christ. Why? Because the law has been taken out of the way. So justification, again, is what saves us, what makes us right for eternity with Christ. Justification, just as if we had never sinned. Sanctification, equally as important. And we're going to get there. It has everything to do with us being fruitful and walking holy and having, and having um, uh, rewards for all of eternity. This life here is but a vapor. So very, very important. We don't want to set aside or sanctification. But right now we're talking about justification. And you as a believer have one response, and that is to fall in love with your Savior. To fall in love with your shepherd. To fall in love with your father. That's the only response God will accept from you. 1 Corinthians 13. You could know all mysteries. You could know all knowledge. You could speak with the tongues of men and angel. But you have not yet responded in total faith to God for his love for you. And you just respond back in love to him. You are nothing, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. And it profits you nothing. There is no law. There's nothing that can be said. Now, for you to get saved, you need to do this, 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 and this. And for you to keep your salvation, you need to do this, 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 and this, and this. There is no such statement. What did you do to get saved? You said, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. That's it. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Romans 10 says, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. What do you say? When? Future tense. You come into your kingdom. He is a king. He believed he was Lord. He believed he had a kingdom. He believed he'd be raised from the dead. That's what the thief on the cross did. That's what Romans says. You believe that he is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you are saved. He gave the right to become children of God, it says in, Roman, in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as believed in his name. When you understand that nature of God, at that moment, he gives you the right to become children of God. What did you do? Nothing. You simply believed in him. Now, all religions in the world cut down into two at this point. One of faith and one of works. All other religions will always add something to faith. Whatever it is, they're going to have to, they're having to jump in there and tag on something. Yes, you are saved by faith alone, by believing in Jesus, and you be a member of our church. And get baptized. And speak in tongues. Or start looking like a Christian. Get your hair cut and, and uh, start wearing a suit on Sunday. And, you know. and so they're adding this. Now, any time, you, you can very easily tell if they have the and in there. Because Paul says very clearly that when they have the and in there, they always want to boast in it. So if somebody says, I'm saved by faith and, whatever it is, baptism, being a member of the right church or whatever, just ask them, well, are, are you baptized? Oh, yeah, you know, I, of course I am baptized, you know. And, and they'll, they'll, they're very proud of the fact. They were baptized, how they got baptized, or the church they're in. Boy, I'm a part of the, boy, they're the right church. They've got it figured out. And they're, they're very, very happy about that, very proudful about that. And that's why Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, not of works. Why? Lest any man boast. God hates it. What did I do to get saved? Nothing. I said I'm a sinner. And God, I believe that you love me and you died for me. That's it. I believed who he is. I believed in what he did. What do I have to boast in? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I believed in him. That was it. But when you add the and in there, you can also always know, one, they'll boast in it. Two, is if you have an and, you have to keep up the works. You see, I'm saved by God's good 
goodness and his grace. All I said is I'm a sinner. Now, what did I do to attain to it? Nothing. What do I do to keep it? Nothing. That's why, remember in Romans chapter 4, turn back there real quick, in verse 16. Therefore it is of faith, what? That it might be according to grace, a gift, so that the promise might be sure, underline that word if you haven't, in chapter 4, verse 16, sure, or a guarantee to all the seed. Do you understand that? Adam and Eve in the garden. They could remain there and live for eternity. One little rule. Out of the 13 billion trees, don't eat from one tree. One rule. One way to screw it up. And what did they do? They screwed it up. Now, they weren't even in fallen sinful flesh at that point. All they had was one rule. Now, <clears throat> What are the odds? If you have something in which you could screw up your salvation, what are the odds of you screwing it up? I'd say about 100%. <laughs> so God has made it of faith. He's done all of the work. That's why he said it is finished. That's why it says in Hebrews 4 that the work for salvation was done before the foundations of the world. That God saw it done before the foundations of the world. Uh, Revelations 13.8, that Christ was crucified. I saw the Lamb crucified, as it were, before the foundations of the world. Why? That it's a guarantee. Why? 1 Corinthians 13. God wants you to respond to him, but he only wants love. If you have an and, you're always going to be doing the extra ands, and the extra and, and the extra and. Why? Because I don't want to get blackballed by God. I don't want to lose my salvation. I don't want to end up in the rears with God. And so there's always the end. And what happens if you don't keep up the ends? You, you're, you lose your salvation. You're back to zero again. And see, Christ doesn't want anything to do with that. He wants you to know there is no law. That means if I never go to church again, Brian, I'll, I'll be saved. Going to church isn't going to save you. No more than going to Winchell's will make you a policeman. You mean reading the Bible? I, I, if I never read the Bible again, I'll, I'll still be saved? Yeah. Re reading the Bible is not going to save you. As a matter of fact, it says in John, Jesus said to the Pharisees, For these scriptures speak of me, which you read, thinking as you read them you have life. But I tell you, you're twice, that, that your father's the devil. And these were Jews that had the Bible memorized. The time they were 12 years old, they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. They couldn't see Christ. And they were wanting to kill the very God who wrote their Bible. No. God doesn't want it. If you're reading your Bible because you're like going, man, I want to be right with God and I want to go to heaven and, you know, I, I I'm such a sinner and, you know, I, I sinned 12 times yesterday. I should, I, I should read at least 12 chapters to make up for it, you know, and God doesn't want it. He hates it. It grieves him. Stop it. That's why he says, if you know all knowledge, if you have understand all mysteries, you got it all down. You're just seeking the Lord and you're giving your body to be burned. You're giving all your goods to the poor and you haven't understood God's love for you. You have not yet been at peace with God knowing that he has done 100% of the work. He doesn't want it. It's not, it doesn't mean anything to him. That would be like my wife. If she says, Brian, that's it. I'm divorcing you. Unless you tell me you love me ten times a day and help me with the dishes and help me with the kids. And so, I mean, I don't want my wife to divorce me. And I know I'm a hill and she probably ought to divorce me. But, you know, she's giving me this chance and I want to stay married to her, you see. So, one Saturday afternoon, she has some friends over and I come in every half an hour going, Cheryl, I'm really sorry to bother you, but I love you. And I go back in and I'm doing the dishes and... And the kids come in going, Mom, you know, I, I need some hungry. Don't worry about it, honey. I'll take care of the kids, you know. And, and this goes on for four or five hours. And all of a sudden, the friends go, you've got the most incredible husband in the world. 
every half an hour he's coming here telling you he loves you, he's doing the dishes, he's taking care of the kids, and you're sitting in here just having coffee and enjoying a conversation. But could she really enjoy it? No. She knows that the works are being done, so I don't get divorced. In the same way, what joy would the Lord have if you're doing these things because you need to keep up with your quota of good works to be right with God? He doesn't want it. He, he's got to put you at peace with justification. There is no law. There is no law for you. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and, and chapter 12, verse 23. I think those are right. But anyway, you'll find them. Chapter 10, verse 23. There's no law. There absolutely is no law for you. Now, we're going to learn in sanctification that without good works, we're not going to be fruitful. Without good works, we're not going to grow. Without good works, we're not going to have rewards in heaven. But to cross that line, to say the good works are necessary to assure your salvation, at that point, we've crossed the line. No. Good works will be evident in a truly changed life. It's, it has to be there. If I'm truly a different person, I am going to act differently. That's James chapter 2. Works will accompany faith every single time. If you buy a new car, I'll see you driving that new car. But again, we have to understand so very, very clearly that the law is dead to us. And we're going to look at that more in chapter 7. We have no law. We have what? We have God's grace. It says in chapter 6, verse 14, we are under grace. Grace. I love grace. There's a neat story over in 2 Samuel. And uh, we're not going to have time to read it all. But it's a wonderful story about Mephibosheth. Do you remember that story where David had been exiled for 15 years, Saul trying to kill him? Saul and his sons now are dead. David tries to come back into the land. He can only make it to Hebron because Ishaboth, Saul's son, is raised up by Abner, Saul's general, as king. For seven and a half years, there's civil war going on. So now it's been 22 years since David was anointed to be king until he finally became king. He goes right up to Jerusalem, takes over that city from the Jubasites. His first act as king is, is there anybody alive from the house of Saul? Smart move, David. Anybody else that might want to claim to be royalty next to Saul from Saul's lineage. That's right. You need to get rid of your, your uh, possible um, rivals who might try to take over your throne. No. What does David do? He finds that there is one descendant left. His name is Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was lame in both his feet. The reason he was lame is because his nurse, when he was five years old, when his nurse heard that Saul and Jonathan had been killed, right then, she picked him up and started running out the door, just frantically. They're dead. Oh, no. She just picked him up and started running. She fell on top of him and crushed his feet. One big nurse. <laughs> the moral of the story is get a skinny nurse. <clears throat> And uh, she crushes his feet. And now he's basically an outcast. David is king. He's in hiding. And he gets Mephibosheth. And he says to Mephibosheth, All the lands that was your father, grandfather Saul, I will establish all of them back to you. But of all those lands, you will not need one penny of the money you make from the harvest to provide for you and your household. I will always take care of you. You will always eat at my table as if you were one of my kids. 
and Mephibosheth dead. His whole life, he was there as one of the kids at David's table, always there eating. Now, you might remember years later, Absalom, David's son, tried to take out David. And David had to flee out into the wilderness. And everybody who was really for 100% sure behind David went with David. Mephibosheth didn't. But he then stayed as an ally with Absalom. After all of the goodness that David had showed this man, he gave him all of the thousands of acres, all of the produce that came from it was all given to him as his own finances. He was totally taken care of, a place to live, a place to eat, all his personal finances totally taken care of. David comes back and he says to Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me? Why didn't you come? And he gives some lame reason. And David just looks past it and keeps him eating at his table as if he is one of his own sons. We see in King David that grace of our Lord. Because as much as we would love to run for Christ, we are all still lame in our feet. We all still stumble and fall, and we can't really walk in the Spirit as we would like to walk in the Spirit. But the Lord just says, don't worry about it. I'll take men to run all of your lands. You eat at my table. I'll provide for all of your needs. Where our sin abounds, his grace will abound more. All that we need for life and godliness, God will provide it by his Spirit. And so we're not under the law anymore. The law would have said, find my rivals and put them to death. The wages of the law is death, because nobody can live according to the law. But instead, life and royalty and sitting at the king's table as one of his own sons is given. So we're now under grace. Now in verse 15, what then, shall we, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? So sin can never be imputed to us. There's no place for God to write down our sin. Um, he deals with this as a father deals with a child. So we're, our sin isn't going to separate us from God. So what are we going to do? Go out and sin? No. Why? He's going to give a very practical explanation of sanctification and then build on it later on in chapter 7 and 8 and then chapter 12. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or obedience to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, there he says it again, set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, he's sort of ashamed of this whole slave freeman analogy. And in verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, that's referring to your hands, your eyes, your feet, your mind, your heart, your members of your body, as slaves of righteousness for sanctification or for holiness, the same root. The root holy is the same root uh, for the sanctification. So unto sanctification or unto holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were set free in regard to righteousness. So make it very clear. The non-believer cannot live for God. Their mind is full of sin. Their heart is full of sin. Their body is full of sin. There is no possibility for them to do righteousness. There is no righteousness anywhere to be found. For them to want it, Number one, for them to have the power to do it. Number two, it's just not going to happen. So even if a non-Christian said, I want to be a dad like Jesus. I want to be a husband like Jesus. I want to be an honest employee who has this incredible character through all adversity just to keep in being this incredible person. They may have visions of that because they're made in the image of God. They can have such thoughts. But to ever do it, it'll, it'll never happen. Why? Because they're full of sin, they're spiritually dead. And there's no righteousness for them to do it. So they're free in regards to righteousness. There's no way they could ever do righteously. But in verse 21, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
Now, again, the concept of death, you've got to understand in the Bible, is not just a physical death. As a matter of fact, um, the Bible really doesn't even use the word death as, as they died physically, except in a, uh, a very clear sense, that that person died physically. But all the way through the Old Testament, when a righteous person died, it says he was gathered to his people. And he was gathered to his people. In the New Testament, it says, and they slept. They just were in a, the word literally is there in a horizontal position. Okay. And so, in, in Genesis chapter 2, you might turn there, it's an easy book to find. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God giving him the one rule that he had, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, listen to that, in the day that you eat of, of it, you shall surely die. Now, did Adam and Eve fall down under that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and become fertilizer for that tree? No, they didn't. But, look over in chapter 3. It's on the same day. And there in verse 22. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. No turning back. And now lest he put his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. How? In that fallen sinful state. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim on the east of the Garden of Eden, and the flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So interesting that God now says, not only is he still alive, but if he were to take of that tree of life after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would live forever as a fallen man never be to be restored back unto Jesus, which is a pretty radical concept. And so what do we find here? We find that the death is separation from God, and that's exactly what happened that day. Those walks in the cool of the evening stopped that day when they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So non-believers are experiencing death right now. It says, although you are alive, you are dead if you're living according to the flesh. While you live, you are dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says they're dead in their trespasses and sins. So death is, in, in the Bible terms, is whether you're spiritually alive and walking with God. Are you spiritually alive and walking with God? Very simply. If you've not come to know Christ, if you've never come to know God as your Savior and said, I believe in you. I believe that you died and rose again. I ask you to come into my life. You right now are spiritually dead. You're probably here tonight because God by his Spirit is calling you unto salvation. He's convicted you of sin. He's convicted you of his righteousness. And he's convic convicted you of judgment to come. Knowing that there is life after death, he's put that in your heart. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, he's put eternity in everybody's heart. So you know that you will live and live and live and live and live. There's no end to it. Everybody can understand that infinite concept, although we're finite, which is quite interesting if you think about it. Why should we be able to uh, con conceptualize... Con what's the word? Concept conceptualize, thank you, infinity. Why should we be able to do that? God's put that within our heart to be able to do that. Why? to let you know when God's Spirit convicts you of judgment and eternal damnation, you would be able to understand it intellectually as well as in your heart and respond to it. But those, it goes on to say, so that's death. It's when you're spiritually separated from God. And that happened that very day that they did eat of the tree. And in verse 22, but now having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit in to holiness or sanctification and the end, everlasting life. Again, everlasting life starts, what? Right now. 
John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, he says, although, um, he says, and you who live now shall never die. He says in verse 26 of John chapter 11, you who believe upon me and you're alive, you shall never die. We are going to leave this body. This body is going to give out, but you are just going to change addresses, right, to a, a brand new tabernacle, right, to, brand, to a brand new tent into a new body before the Lord. And so <clears throat> he makes it clear that we now experience sanctification. We now can experience holiness. We can start right now experiencing a life that will never end. And in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Make it clear. You want to get paid your just due? I don't think so. <laughs> it's eternal damnation. But your wages of salvation is eternal life. Is that what your Bible says? No. There's no way we can earn eternal life, is there? That's why it says, and the gift or the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. At this point, he ends his talking about justification, making it very completely clear. Without the free gift of Jesus Christ, as he says in Romans chapter 4, apart from your works, you believe in a God who justifies the ungodly without works, but simply by believing in him, he will give salvation to you as a free gift. No more imputation of sin. It's of, it's of a gift. It's of grace. So there's no stipulation. There's no rules taking it from it or adding to it. It's given to you as a free gift. It's a, so it might be an absolute certainty that therefore you can respond to God out of just a heart of love. So I read my Bible. Why? Because I want to make sure I stay saved. No. Because I just want to know more about the one who loves me. Now, he makes this abundantly clear in chapter 7. I told you he'd make it there. I wasn't so sure, but... In verse 1. Or do you not know? When Paul says that, he's like going, man, if you don't get this, go back and read the first six chapters until you get it. Um, You've got to understand this. Brethren... For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So if you are going to try to be justified by your works, by your standard, by your idea that's going to make you right with God, you've got to understand it. It is the law of, that's going to dominate you. James says that if you break one point of the law, that's it. You've, as far as God's concerned, you've broken it all. It's like being out in the middle of the ocean with a life raft going, we're safe, and there's only one hole. <laughs> you know, one hole's enough. You're not going to be safe. That life raft is not going to do you any good. One hole is enough. And the same with the law. One place, you, you break it, that's it, your history. So have you lied? Yes, you have. Have you dishonored your parents? Have you used God's name in vain? Have you lusted after a woman or a man in your heart? Have you said to somebody, you idiot and I hate you? You have murdered. You are an adulterer. You are a murderer. You are a liar. You are disobedient. You are a blasphemer of God because you've used his name in vain. You are a sinner. The law isn't going to help you, folks. Let go of the life raft. <laughs> it's not going to do you any good. And that's the point he's making. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dominate you. If, you. if you're trying to use it in any shape or form, let it go. It's a piece of plastic that's going to float to the bottom of the ocean. Now, a woman in the Jewish culture had no rights whatsoever. Interesting, though, there is one place in the law where we find the woman has a right to remarry. And notice this in verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Now, if you go back in the law, the woman could not make a decision. If she wanted to tell another friend, Hey, I promise you I'll be there to help you out when you're ready to have your baby. And her 
it was found out that she made that promise without first asking her husband if she could make that promise, she could be put to death. At least he could divorce her. She couldn't do it. Her, her husband had to give her the right to make the vow. She had no rights um, of any say in the home whatsoever. And so her husband dominated her, her life. Everywhere she went, every, everything she did, she had no decision-making power. She could not go anywhere. She could not do anything. It's not like she could get a job or buy or sell. She was stuck to that guy. Unless he dies. Then she's released from the law of her husband. In verse 3, So then, while her husband lives, she marries another man. She will be called an adulteress. But... If her husband dies, well, she's free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So we are going to die to standards. We're going to die to the law of any way, shape, or form, trying to justify us, make us right with God. We're going to let that go. Why? So we can marry another. And notice what will happen when we marry Jesus. We now can bear fruit to God. You cannot bear fruit under legalism. And in verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the passions of sin which aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law. That old husband of ours is dead, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. It would be like this. <clears throat> My dad says to me, every Saturday morning, you are going to get a bucket, get some soap, and you are going to scrub my car. There's not going to be one bug left on that car. There's not going to be any tar mix on it. It's going to be completely cleaned. And you're going to get the vacuum and completely vacuum it out. And I'm going to inspect it. Every Saturday morning, oh, man, you know, i got to go clean that car and... Oh, it takes me forever, but you know, I'm out there and I'm scrubbing on that thing and I'm making it as clean as I can and doing it as quick as I can and vacuum it out. And dad comes out. What do you think? Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, Whew, I'm done. But then <clears throat> I turn 16 and there's this gal. Wow. I can't wait to get with her on Saturday night. We're going to go out bowling. And I go to Dad. Hey, Dad, can I borrow the car Saturday night? Sure, you can borrow the car. Saturday morning, I get up. Now, I'm washing the car. I am scrubbing that thing silly. <laughs> I'm scrubbing the hubcaps. I'm scrubbing the tire. I'm down underneath scrubbing the exhaust manifold. And, and then I get the wax out and I begin waxing it and boy do I vacuum I, I usually takes me 15 minutes I vacuum that thing for three hours and then I go down and get the dollar you know and, and get the good smelling stuff in there and get it dangling you know and from the the mirror there and buff out the get the armor all and buff out the seats you know and clean all the windows and what's happened there's a whole nother heart. There's a whole nother attitude. Why? Because love has come in. There's a desire in my heart to want to see this done. Now, if we try to hang on to the law, you see, the law says, you got to get that done. Oh, man, okay, I'll read my Bible. Oh, oh. You know, oh. My devotionals, you know, I need to get my devotionals done because we're going to have accountability time at church this week and I don't want to say I didn't read my devotionals, you know, at accountability time. And, and now all of a sudden, Christianity is this big weight and it's a bummer 
because I got to make sure I read the Bible like I carry out the trash. And I got to make sure that I did all the right things because at accountability time, I don't want to say, I fleshed out all week, you know, and then they're going to be asking me all week, you know, are you, you fleshing out again this week, you know. I, I don't want that. So, you know, I want to make sure I do it all so I at least have a presentation. So what's happening? The law makes me want to look right. It has nothing to do with the heart. But when I'm in love, now love all of a sudden says, yes, I want to do it. And I, I, I want to know more. And I want to go far beyond any law could ever make me go. And so love sets us free. And so with Christ, we come to Christ and we say, okay, now I divorced, I divorced Mr. Law and now I'm marrying uh, Jesus. Now, what do I do? And Jesus is just saying, learn of me. Oh, okay, what, what do I do though? Just hang out with me. Well, how's that going to solve anything? You see, as I hang out with Christ, I begin acting like Christ. Have you ever noticed you start acting like whoever you hang out with? I learn his mercies, and all of a sudden, I start becoming merciful like he's merciful. What has God required of you, O oh man? To do justly. I am a sinner. I've got to confess my sins. And as I confess my sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I need to call black, black, and white, white. There's no gray area. God, you say that's sin, that's sin. I need to, I need to understand that God is not um, trying to say, live however you want. No. There is still righteousness and unrighteousness. Those who live righteously are righteously. Those who live unrighteously are of the devil. They've not yet been born again. That's what 1 John chapter 3 says. So God hasn't changed the standard. It's just now the way I'm going to get to the standard is by his strength, his power. As it says in 2 Corinthians, that well, let's look at that, chapter 3. Turn over there. Chapter 3. In verse 2, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 2, you are, our you are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, by, with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, verse 7, referring to the law versus the new covenant. But if the ministry of death, referring to the Old Testament law, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory had, was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? But if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even... What was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. So the glory of the New Testament just shines so brightly, it, it, you can't even see the brightness of the, of the Old Testament glory anymore. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Remember the law? It makes you want to appear a certain way. Moses would come down off the mountain shining and people were going, whoa, man, his, his face, I can't already look at it. He put a veil, why? Because the glory was fat passing away and he wanted them to remember the intensity of the glory and thinking, oh, that's what's going on behind that veil. That's what... That's the reason Moses put a veil, because the glory was passing away. But their minds were hardened, for until this day the same veil remains up unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. 
For even so to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. But we all with unveiled faces beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into what? The same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we now are married to Christ. And being married to Christ, we have the ability to bear fruit. How? By hanging out with him. How does it happen? It says in Ephesians 2.10, He has made us into this beautiful work of art, and He's predestined good works before the foundations of the world that those good works we should walk in. So all of a sudden, I'm living for Christ. Well, how do you do it, Brian? Well, it's a certain discipleship program I've been a uh, part of, you know. <clears throat> I've, uh, you know, memorizing five uh, verses a day. And it takes quite a bit of discipline and diligence and uh, self-determination to cause this to happen. But if you uh, really buckle down, you can also have the same amount of good works in your life if you're willing to seriously apply yourself. No. How did it happen? I don't know. I was sending my head off last time I remember. And the next thing I remember is I'm just fully leading people to Christ and I don't, I don't know how it happened. All I know, I was just crying out to God, going, God, I, I want to love you, and I don't have very much love. God, I, I want to serve you, but I'm just so self-centered. And I'm just, I just love the world, and I love the things of this world, and I love the flesh, and they're killing me. And they're destroying my mind, they're destroying my heart, and they're destroying my relationships, and I, I need you, God. And all I know is I, I've been, I was calling out to God, and then I don't know. A few months later, I just, I look back and I'm like, wow, I, I, I know a lot of the Bible. I don't, I guess I've been reading it, you know. God's been giving me strength and I've been reading it. And I'm just talking all the time to him just because I'm poor and needy. The Bible says, blessed are those who are, are um, poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are hunger, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They shall be filled. So how did it happen? I don't know. Just God did it. From his glory, by his spirit, glory to glory, by the spirit of God, he's changing me into his image. That's why Jesus said, as he looked at the Pharisees, heaping all these laws upon him, he just grieved. In Matthew chapter 11, and let's turn and look there. It's a beautiful, heart-wrenching prayer of Jesus Christ. In verse 25 of Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 11 verse 25, At that time Jesus answered and said, Oh, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the imprudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All, the, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, under the law, suppressed, depressed, downtrodden, and I will give you a new set of laws that aren't quite so heavy. No. It doesn't say that. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what does Christ say? Just take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now this is odd. Because a yoke is what they put on oxen. And a yoke was, every yoke had to be specially made for every oxen. They would come and they would measure its backbones, they would measure its width, they would measure where the bones are sticking up, and, and then they would go back and they would carve out a yoke exactly where the bones were and the, and the width of the ox. 
And this big chunk of wood would set just like a glove right down on the back of this ox. So you didn't make an ox, you didn't make a yoke and say, okay, Mr. Ox, fit into the yoke. You first found out the shape and the size of the ox and then made a yoke for it, but not with Christ. He says, take my yoke upon you. In other words, what? Mold into his image. Let's put that yoke, which is easy and light. Why? Because Jesus has reduced it all down to love. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Period. And everything else is fulfilled. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. If you love God, you're not going to use his name in vain. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to lie and kill him, commit adultery with him, or try to tell him you hate him or he's an idiot. If you love God, you're not going to make another image and bow down and worship it. The law is fulfilled if you just love, the law is fulfilled if you just love God. And so he's reduced us now to see his love. So where does God want you? He wants you to see his, lo see his love for you. That's it. He wants you to see the height, the width, the depth, the length, to know the love of God that passes all human comprehension, which is the common denominator, Ephesians 3 says, of all the saints, that you would experience also with all the saints his height, the width, the length, the depth, to know the love of God that passes all understanding. So we are reduced to love. So today, if there is a weakness in your life, there's two reasons that weakness is there. One, you need a greater love in your life. You are lacking in love for God. Well, I'm just, I just don't want to be in the Word. You don't love Him. If I was out on the Westpac, and I was out there on the, in the ship, and I had been gone for three months from my girlfriend, and all of a sudden, a letter comes. And I grab that letter and I just rip it open and I read it and I read it and I carry it with me. I'm reading it, I'm reading it, I'm reading it. Now, if my buddy says, oh, you, you want to read a letter that uh, my girlfriend wrote me? It's like, well, maybe on Westpac you might. I mean, it gets pretty boring out there. But <laughs> typically you would say, I, I don't really care what your girlfriend has to say to you. But you see, that if that's letter. So again, when you're in love, you want to read the Bible because you want to know more and more about him. You want to know everything about him. You want to know his likes, his dislikes. You want to know what he is like and what he's not like. You want to know what makes him laugh and you want to know that makes him cry. You want to know his passion about things and his desire for things. All of this is why we know the Bible. And that's when we get to heaven, we're not going to be introduced to Jesus and get to know him for the first time. Although we don't see him, yet we love him, it says in Peter. The Bible makes it clear that we can know him now fully. We can know him. We can know his attributes, all there is to know about God. We can know it through the Bible. Now, obviously, he's infinite, and so there's certain things in our finite mind that we see through a mirror dimly. But there is... Every attribute and every aspect of the nature of God is revealed in the Bible. Just think about that. The infinite God was able to give us a finite chapter and verses. I won't say a finite book, because it's an infinite book, because these words are living and active, to know him. Oh, I'm just having a hard time reading the Bible. You're lacking in love. The other thing you're lacking in is knowledge. It's that simple. I was talking to a brother today, and, and he said, why, sh why should I live for God? I mean, I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But why should I totally deny myself and really live for God right now? I mean, he keeps talking about sanctification. What's the sanctification thing have to do with anything? I said, it has everything to do with everything. Because one, if you truly have a love for God, you want to be able to express that love. When you're walking in sin, you can't express that love. Also, when you're in sin, you can't be fruitful. And you want to love him, you want to be fruitful to him, you want to bless him. 
And also, all of eternity, its reward is based upon our fruitfulness on this earth. So for me, if, if God said to me, Brian, I'm going to take you to heaven, but just hang out and keep being your old, ugly, sinful self until I give you a new body, I, I don't think I could make it. I am so glad I have the hope and the joy and the challenge of making this sinful body live in the image in which I truly am. All the old things passed away, all things became new in spirit, but I want to see the sinful body be 100% fruitful, to totally love God, and to totally love others as God has loved me. I want to be able to do that. And so, when I said that to him, it just, the lights came on. And he just said, how did I miss that? And right there, there were some things in his life that he has struggled with, and he goes, you know, I can see so clearly those things aren't going to be a struggle for me anymore. Because now I have this determination in my heart. I, I just see so clearly, I want to be 100% sold out for Christ now too. Man, I want to store up as many treasures in heaven as I can to be close as I can to Christ for all of eternity. But again, that lack of knowledge he had, understanding sanctification, was keeping him to live a holy life now. It says in Hosea, because they lacked knowledge, therefore they were destroyed. Paul understood this, and in closing here tonight, let's look over at Philippians chapter 1, and next week we will get into sanctification. We're going to get into positional sanctification and then practical sanctification. But turn to Philippians chapter 1. And then we'll also look at Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 9. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9. For this I pray that your love may what? Abound still more and more in what? In knowledge, in all discernment. Why? That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So Paul knows if you can grow in love and if you can grow in the knowledge of the, what the Bible has to say, you're going to be able to prove things. You're going to be able to walk in an excellent way, sincere, without offense, right up until Christ comes back, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Turn over to Colossians, just a couple of pages to the right. Chapter 1, verse 9 also. Two great prayers to memorize, by the way, guys. You want to make sure you're praying according to the will of God. Pray verses of the Bible. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. You understand this? Being fruitful in every good work. How? By increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience, long-suffering with joy, and goes on. The two keys, love and knowledge. Now, sanctification has works in it. Paul says, I labor more than all. I strive, strive together with me. Now, is there any works in justification? Absolutely not. If you are working, you are not believing. Because if you truly believe, you'll know there's nothing you can do to add to your salvation, and there's nothing you can do that will take away from salvation. Therefore, the work has ceased in justification. But sanctification, as we are going to discover, you must work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And there is much labor. There is much work. Of course, you're rejoicing the whole time in it because it's out of a heart of love. You're out there polishing on that car <laughs> because you're excited about Jesus and you're excited about spending time with him and you're excited about your growth together. It's, believe me, it's not a burden. And all that you put into it is it's full of love and joy and, and so you have incredible work. So, to say there's not labor and work in Christianity, it's all kicking back and taking the free ride? No. But it's never for justification. It's out of the joy of sanctification. And he said to me, him, he goes, but yeah, you know, but we're in sinful flesh. We're always going to sin. I mean, how close can we get? James says, 
let the trials have their perfect work till we're complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. Whoa. We can get doggone close to walking in the very image of Jesus Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Folks, we can work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and the process of sanctification can speed up so rapidly that it doesn't take a hundred years for you to start living a godly life. No. In a very short period of time, you can start walking with Christ in purity, in holiness, in innocence, and living a very dynamic and a powerful Christian life as Paul said to the Corinthian church, people see you and read the very letters of Christ. You are Jesus Christ of the world as they look at you. That, to me, is the joy of Christianity. Sanctification. The challenge to be able to live like Jesus Christ, even though we're in sinful bodies. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the next couple of weeks. Lord, we thank you for your word. Bless your dear, dear saints to the knowledge of your word tonight. Set them free concerning justification. Excite their hearts with joy and anticipation concerning sanctification. Lord, we thank you that we have died to trying to meet some standard to make you happy. We know that we always cause joy and happiness to you because we're yours. And we thank you, Lord, that you're not grading us on our performance. But oh, how you want to shape us into your very image. We know you're going to do that work completely one day, face to face with you in our new body. But even now, Lord, we want to see it happen so we could be 100% fruitful, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of you, walking in a manner worthy of you. Give us great joy as we seek into sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. If you need